Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Leslie Davenport. Leslie is a climate psychology educator and consultant who brings applied neuroscience into interdisciplinary dialogues that advance creative engagement with climate change issues. She is the founding member of the Institute for Health and Healing, one of the nation's first and largest hospital-based integrative medicine programs. Her 25 years of medical experience developing an empowering and collaborative approach to resolving crises has informed her climate psychology model. She is the author of three books, including Emotional Resilience, in the era of climate change, and she is completing a similar book for kids through the American Psychological Association Imagination Press. She helped shape the document, Mental Health and Our Changing Climate, Impacts, Implications, and Guidance. Leslie is on faculty with the California Institute of Integral Studies and serves as an advisor with Project Inside Out. Welcome, Leslie. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm talking with Leslie Davenport, a climate psychologist. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks so much. You know, the very first question I have is, what is climate psychology? <laughs> yes, that's the, I often get that question when people ask what I do, because it is really an emerging field. It's not very well known. So it looks at the way that psychological insights and practices have a role to play in addressing our climate change issues. And that can be anything from working directly with clients who either feel the anxiety of being aware of living on a warming world and all the things that come along with it, it can move into the area of disaster mental health for people who have experienced directly a flood, a fire, maybe you know a family member or friend who has. But I also work with the mental health field, bringing climate awareness into the therapy rooms because you know we're we're trained to when we interview a new client and find out about their background and what are the things that might be feeding into an experience of anxiety or depression. And we ask about their background and their current stressors and their family system. But what's happening in the world, what's happening with the environment is more and more becoming an influencing factor. So how to get our own field a little more current with those kinds of considerations. And then I also work with nonprofits and agencies. I just came out of a four-day think tank where there were policymakers and economists and military and indigenous lawyers, all looking at the ways that these aspects of our society intersect with climate change. And it's more common for people to say, well, climate change comes out of human behavior. But when we look at climate change solutions, we're often not including human behavior. And that's something we can bring to it. Our unexamined assumptions, beliefs that affect our values, that influence our actions, that influence the environment, and then come back to affect us. 
Okay. And how did this <laughs> emerge as a specialty? I'm so curious. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where several people at the same time, kind of in different places, the way it sometimes happens with medical or scientific inventions, start discovering the same thing. And then later it kind of comes together in a more cohesive way. So for me personally, I had spent 25 years of my career in health psychology. I was working in a hospital and it was a a really innovative model, very interdisciplinary and collaborative. It was really the emergence of what we think of now as integrative medicine. Hmm. So as a psychotherapist, I was working with MDs and nurses and chaplains and body workers and acupuncturists and chiropractors to do this really collaborative team approach to support people who had health concerns, anything from preparing for surgery to a cancer diagnosis or chronic autoimmune issues, whatever it might be. And when I personally started to have my eyes open, mostly just from news and my own interest in what was happening in the climate, I really saw how my experience in the hospital could be such a helpful model of bringing together, kind of as I was speaking about with this recent think tank on climate, we really need the engineers sitting next to the policymakers, sitting next to indigenous wisdom keepers, sitting next to psychology, to have a complete enough view of what's really needed because it is very much a systems issue. So I began kind of connecting those dots myself and putting the word out and reaching out to others. And now it has become more cohesive, although since it's still relatively new, I think it's in the process of still defining itself. Okay, so I wonder if... I think most of the listeners who maybe clicked on this podcast thought, hmm, climate psychology, that's interesting. I'm a little bit anxious about, you know, the future of our planet, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the interest for people who are listening right now is thinking about maybe their own anxiety about it and how, you know, something like psychotherapy could be helpful to walk them through the process of creating kind of a different understanding or how to be in the world given just the current state of and likely future <laughs> outcomes, right? So yeah. can you talk about, maybe it would be helpful to talk about how you approach a client with this topic. Sure. Well, first I want to add that anxiety is definitely one of the things we see, as, you know, and it's why the term eco-anxiety is now starting to be used. But there are many other emotional responses as well. There's so many losses related to climate change, not just from natural disasters, but the loss of biodiversity and all kinds of things that grief is often a response I see. There's often a sense of helplessness, hopelessness that can be part of depression because it can feel so big and so complex. So I'll speak to it, but I just want to start by opening up that there really is a myriad of emotional responses Mm -hmm. as people focus on our changing climate. 
the first thing I often do is just to really validate those feelings. Because if you are a caring person, if you are a sensitive person, you know, if your eyes are open to it and your heart is open to it, these are natural, healthy reactions to witnessing you know, devastating changes. You know, and it in fact is scary that there's a lot that needs to happen to get a handle on it before it becomes worse than it already is. You and I are speaking at a time when there's, you know, wildfires raging through California and there's a looming threat of a large hurricane that sounds like it's about to hit the Gulf Coast. These are very real things. So I don't want to make it too much of a pathologized response. It's a healthy response if your eyes and heart are open. And then from there, we do use many of the tools that are available in our fields, ways to help regulate the nervous system and trauma-informed approaches. So one that I personally love is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the butterfly hug, but it's a very simple version of an EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing approach that's often used in trauma. And I'll try to describe it because you just rest your hands on your chest with your fingertips tapping against your collarbone. And you focus on your feeling of distress while you alternate tapping on the right and the left side. Take a few clearing breaths. And then you tap again, this time focusing on something that's grounding and real. Like if you're anxious about your own safety in, in a warming world, you might focus on the fact that right now you're in a safe place. And you, you know, you look at your environment around you and and you look at the support you do have and you tap that in to ground yourself in the present moment. So there's some really simple tools and obviously in working with a therapist, it's possible to go into more complex versions of this kind of care. But I, I really like any intervention that includes body-based approaches. As we learn more and more about trauma, we realize it's not only in our thoughts and the stories we tell ourselves, but that our nervous systems hold traumatic impressions. And so there's a lot of great techniques that work with releasing through the body as well. Got it. Okay. So in this kind of climate psychology emerging field, so part of it is tolerating the anxiety, but the part kind of moving past that is a call to action. Yeah, very much so. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, most people do find some relief and some encouragement from a emotional mental health perspective when they can rally these feelings in the direction of making a meaningful difference. So that would be the call to action. I think what's so valuable of talking about it this way in the context of mental health, behavioral health, is that some people just jump to action in almost out of a stress reaction, like this is too uncomfortable, so I'm just going to come out swinging kind of thing. But if we can really start by noticing what we're feeling, reflecting on it, 
kind of what I said about why it's here. It is a, a signal. It is a signal that something's not right. And then look at what are my contributions? What can I do about it? And that action can take many, many forms. You know, there's a, a lot of advocacy that takes place in terms of demonstrations and protests, and that's just great. But that's not necessarily the avenue for everyone's gifts. There's advocacy through art. There's advocacy through other types of civic engagement. Parents are advocates. Teachers can be advocates if that sustainability lens is brought to whatever our work is, whatever our sphere of influence is, because there's room for change, good change in, in pretty much every human endeavor that we have. I was also thinking about kind of change on the micro level of understanding that, you know, you could change your own personal behaviors. Yes. Right? And this yes. guilt and shame about mm-hmm. not doing that, despite knowing that you probably should. But I think there's that mm-hmm. um, disconnect between the reality of your behaviors and kind of what you know you should maybe be doing. <laughs> so well, I think of vegetarianism, good. right? This idea of like, okay, yeah, it probably would be better if I actually was vegan or vegetarian, but I don't want to do that, right? And I'm not a vegetarian, yeah. but I, I it's, maybe mm-hmm. I think of it because of my own personal struggle too. Yes, this is such an important point because, so you mentioned the need to tolerate some anxiety as well as address it, and that's true. But you're also now bringing up the question or the concern of tolerating our own ambivalence. We want to do something different, and yet we're caught in a system that in many ways makes it very difficult to make some of those changes on an individual level. You know, take something as simple as the benefits of eating organically and how that's not only good for our personal health, it's better for the environment. But that's not always available, and when it is, it's more expensive. And so I do think it's very important to start with our own examination of what each of us can do but it does have to include a shift of the system as a whole. Another example is that, you know, some people may be able to afford a solar panel on their home, let's say, to, Mm -hmm. you know, use more sustainable energy sources. But if you live in an apartment, or again, there might be a financial issue, if you can support a community policy or community law that builds a solar farm to power the entire community, the effects of that just are more far-reaching. So I don't think it's an either-or. I think it really needs to happen sort of from the grassroots up and from policymaking down. And meanwhile, we are kind of caught in the middle. So to have self-compassion, because if we do feel too strongly that tug and pull of ambivalence and we're not doing enough and the shame comes in. Sometimes that's why we disengage from doing anything at all because it just feels too big, too complicated, too hard. So it sounds like you approach it from this angle of acceptance of where the person is, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that guilt and shame about that could be actually counterproductive. 
right? Yes. And so this idea is that you do what you can with yes. the hope that over time you start developing more of a drive to make significant changes, but it's a process maybe. Beautifully said. And I think what I would add is, you know, while we each have to do our part, and again, it is that individual examination and sort of reckoning, we can also look for forms of support, other people doing a similar thing, family events that have a conservation or ecological component to them, so that it doesn't feel like, again, that we're doing this in isolation. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a, a kind way. It makes me feel less guilty about me not being vegetarian as well. Yes. But, um, let's say I'm sure it comes up. Someone is anxious about, you know, doing something to make an impact in their world and people around them aren't, aren't thinking about it in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that comes up quite a bit in therapy in terms of frustration or anger yes. about that. Yes, it does. And honestly, where I see it coming up the most, and perhaps for good reason, is among many of the youth. You know, honestly, as as young as 10, especially then in teens and young adults, in the sense of them saying, whoa, we've inherited this world where the adults around us you know, have been significant in creating these problems and don't seem to be responding in ways, what about us? What about our future? You know, why is it on our laps that we have to be the ones to kind of clean up this mess? So there is a very generational voice to what you've just named, and it certainly does come up in individuals as well, a feeling especially for people who feel very strongly or passionately about it, it is hard, again, when you feel that your efforts are being countered by those who don't care or not paying attention or not doing what they can. And it becomes another one of those feelings we have to work with, right? Because again, if that gets too big, we go, well, does does it even matter what I'm doing? Right. There's so much, there's so much other things. So, you know, even some of the really well-known climate scientists say one of the most important things we can do is to talk about it. John Lewis, the civil rights leader said, you know, one of the things we can do for our civic responsibility is to speak up. So the question then becomes, you know, we can't, there's a quote I love, I don't remember who said it, but she said, cracking heads does not open minds, mm. right? So it, it doesn't mean that we can, again, come out swinging. But what if we are vulnerable enough to say, this is really important to me, and this is why, and I have concerns about this, and to open up a conversation where we can be compassionate truth tellers, where we can reveal what's you know, on our hearts and minds and see what happens. Right. Then again, you're also talking about the frustration and anger is not productive in this realm, right? And it's about approaching it in a measured way, which would probably make the most impact. Yes. And, you know, that's such a tricky area because especially in the face of a lot of the 
inequalities and things that are happening, rage is a really understandable reaction, right? And yet, I do agree that to look at what are the most effective ways to channel that energy is, is an important step in the process, and not only to act out of a reactionary state. Right. So, I mean, we're talking a bit about your individual work, but move maybe into talking about your kind of broader work that you're doing. Sure. Well, one of the things I'm very excited about is I'm an advisor for an emerging resource hub called Project Inside Out. And it brings together psychology with activists and policymakers for exactly what I'm talking about, sustainable behavior change. Looking at many of these concepts that I've articulated, it was founded by Renee Lertzman and funded by the KR Foundation, but there's many people who are a part of bringing this together. And it's going to be a website and there's going to be lectures and programs as well. But it's going to be where people can come for resources, perspectives, the best research and clinical practices, and then apply it to whatever they're doing. Again, whether it's in an organization or being part of shaping a community response project or something that can be talked about even, you know, in a neighborhood club or discussion of some kind. So let me just briefly mention the five guiding principles we've come up with because it's a nice summary of much of what I've been talking about. So the first is attune, and this really means listening, sensing, tuning into ourselves, our own stress and anxiety, letting those be guides or teachers to us so that we can tune into others more empathetically. The second one is reveal, which is to be honest about what's happening with the client, with the climate, but doing it in again, a compassionate way and an empathetic way, modeling that authenticity that I was describing about how conversations might be able to happen. The third one is convene. And it's the idea of bringing people together, coming together, not to teach them something or to set people straight, but to have a genuine setting where people can express openly their perspectives, their concerns, their potential contributions to a very complex issue. The fourth one is equip. And this is about learning tools that are either about the kind of self-care we talked about, could also include tools for effective communication. So people might like that idea of communication, but it's a, how, well, how do I do that? So it will be tools for that. And the last one is sustain, which is that this really is a long-term effort. There are things that need to happen now, are happening now, but let's also look at the long arc of how to take care of ourselves in the process of taking care of the planet. Got it. So it sounds like a great resource. Yes. It will be launching in October, so just around the corner. And who will the audience be? Well, you know, ultimately, we want to see individuals and organizations finding this resource hub. 
So again, you know, clients who are, as you mentioned, feeling anxiety or grief around this can come to it for tools. It's also great for, again, people wanting to do advocacy work, but maybe they've been at it for a while and feels like it's not very effective. Mm-hmm. So how to bring more depth and new approaches and avoid burnout <laughs> for that kind of thing. And again, I, I'm really delighted that there seems to be more of a recognition that governmental agencies, nonprofits need to weave in our behavioral health understanding that the research is valuable for that work. So I think it's really meant to be helpful, available, accessible across from the individual through the organizations. As you were talking about those, I was thinking about parenting resources. Is there going to be any work about parenting resources and how parents can can start to conceptualize this in their parenting work? I think that's so needed. You know, I'm not sure the initial launch is going to have that, but we are always looking for feedback of what are people needing and how to grow the resources. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that that will be there, even if it's not part of the initial launch. Got it. Because it seems like there's some, we're talking about different generations, right? Mm. And so every generation is a little bit different in how they were educated about it, right? And how to think of it. And even with, you know, the parents now, even though people are embracing more of this idea about climate change and, you know, making positive lasting changes, I think our children at this point are much more focused on that, right? In their education and just in just kind of socially, you know, how they interact. So there's still a kind of a large difference between parents now and, and, you know, the youth of today, not just young adults, right? Yes. You know, let me share a project and a different project with you that I'm working on. Most of my work has been with adults, but several months ago, I was approached by the children's book division of American Psychological Association. It's called Imagination Press. And they do a lot of books on things like kids being bullied in school and the feelings about that and what to do or test-taking anxiety. And they asked me if I would be willing to do one on eco-anxiety and the feelings that come up around climate change. And this book's going to be geared toward probably early middle schoolers type age. And there is a lengthy introduction for parents, teachers, counselors, even though the book itself is written for kids and there's a lot of emotional resiliency practices in it. But I could see that being something that families potentially do together and learn together. Because in the process of preparing for this book, I spoke with quite a few kids, anywhere from as young as 10 through 13, 14, And I would just ask them, you know, what have you heard about climate change? What do you know about it? What feelings are there? And many children or kids this age were extremely articulate. And the parents were sitting off on the side listening, and they were somewhat stunned. They were like, where did you hear all that? (laughs) You know, did you learn this in school? And they're going, well, not really. It's the news, and I'm interested. I'm looking it up on the Internet. And it was very eye-opening, you know, right along the lines of what you're saying is in some way, the kids are already taking the lead and we do need to catch up. 
Hmm. Well, this was, I mean, a very interesting conversation. I appreciate your time and willingness to talk about the work that you do and as well as the upcoming launch of Project Inside Out. I will make sure that I have your website as well as the Project Inside Out on our episode description. But if someone's interested in in this field or learning more about it do you have any resources that you really like that you often recommend to people mm-hmm. well another resource i'll give you because it can be provided as a link is there's a free pdf i was one of the creators of this with a small group of therapists that are resources for emotional resiliency related to climate and some of them are for kids and some are for adults, some can be done individually, some are for groups. So I'll make sure that you have access to that. And I'll just mention that on my website, there's quite a few resources. There's a number of free MP3 relaxation tools. There are other articles. I did write a book already called Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change that's geared toward adults. So there's a lot there that can also provide additional resources. Great. Okay. Well, we'll make sure that's all on there for the listener to check those things out. Is there anything, and we could go on and on about this topic, (laughs) but this is really meant for just kind of to get you know, maybe the listener's appetite stimulated about this topic and to start thinking Mm -hmm. about this. But is there any big issue or big topic that maybe we didn't address that you think would be an important major point to include? Maybe just underscoring something that we touched on lightly, which is that we can really rethink and redefine what it means to be an advocate or involved in this kind of work. It does not necessarily mean picking up a sign and being on the streets, although that is one outlet. But again, wherever you are, whatever you do, what happens if you start to look at it through that lens of sustainability? Because again, we need artists, we need educators, we need parents, we need children, we need policymakers, we need medicine. There's not one field that doesn't require a shift in how they think and do whatever it is they're offering. And so there's absolutely a need and a place for every person in this work. True. That's a good thought to end on, I think. Mm. Don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) I do. This idea of, of hope and that whatever your skills are, you can make a contribution right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be one thing. It can be based Mm. on who you are and what's important to you and your strengths, really. Yes. Yes. And we need the diversity of views and the diversity of talents. Right. Yeah. I really like that. Well, I really appreciate you being on and I learned a lot about climate psychology and I think it'll help shape the work that I do with my own clients. And also, you know, giving suggestions about how they can help shape the way that they think about this in a way that maybe could be a little bit more palatable and helpful for themselves and for their community. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you for bringing this, this and other important topics forward in, in this podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. We'll be well. You too. Bye. This has been Mind Stories. 
With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, and Echo Park, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.